We've had a good amount of church this morning. We might as well. I don't know. I promise not to get in the way. We've had a, we've had a good amount of church, but I, I think the well is, uh, is everlasting. So let's be, let's be steeped in it. But I, I, I do understand that it's best if I get out of the way. You know, the words of John the Baptist often echo in my head. He must increase. I must decrease. It's only his well that's everlasting. I'll tell you a story about how obvious it is that I need to decrease. The, the summer after I graduated from high school, uh, we were traveling up to Wisconsin quite often. My grandfather was sick, and they lived up in Wisconsin. And uh, we actually went to, uh, we went to this, this, this concert series called Summerfest. Uh, it's, it's right there on the lake. It's actually quite wonderful. Uh, if you don't think there are wonderful things in Wisconsin, you should try it. It's great. There's lots of good things. And uh, the, uh, the way they do this is they have these concerts all day long, and then at night they have this sort of this headliners. Uh, and, and the headliners, uh, this one particular evening, was a dual concert with Bob Dylan and Paul Simon. I mean, <laughs> right? And if, if you're wondering, I graduated in 1999 from high school, not 1969 or 79, but they were still doing it, right? And uh, so what had to happen is, you had to, you know, pay your entry to the park, and then you got to sort of meander and sit along the lake and listen to bands from all over the country and all over the world. And then at night, if you were one of the, the chosen few, if you, if you had been there early enough, you could get a hand stamp, and that would give you actually free access to this concert. So uh, we, we arrived at the gates to Summerfest quite early. I think maybe an hour early. I remember standing there for quite some time. Uh, and, and maybe it was a bad idea to be there early because all those minutes ticking by just became more and more like anxiety-ridden. I was, the tension was building. Because I think somewhere along the way, I realized we're actually on the wrong side of the park. The, the, the place we need to be to get our stamp to, to prove that we belong in the show is actually on the other side of the park. And I'm thinking, okay, how many thousands of people are they going to give this stamp to, right? And so I, I didn't know if I was going to be, I mean, we're on the wrong side. And there's, there's this crowd, and, and who knows, I could, be, I could be on the outside looking in. Maybe, maybe I won't make the cut. And the anxiety is, is, is building and uh, perhaps sometimes spilling out of my mouth. Uh, I, I, I prom- actually, it was, it was spilling out of my mouth. Sometimes cutting remarks. Um, telling people to make sure their shoes are tied. We're about to, we're about to run. This is going to happen. You better be ready because I'm not waiting for anyone. I think I might have said that sentence. <laughs> so they they opened the gates and I I really I really did not wait for anyone. It was my mother and my father. My dad doesn't even have any ACLs. <laughs> they tore and they were like, never mind. Just you don't need them. So I was sprinting. My mother and my father and a couple of my cousins were not. And I think I, I remember doing a swim move between this young couple who was in love. Get through there. I may have knocked an elderly woman down. I do remember actually deciding, should I hurdle this child or wait to go around them? My, my better judgment did rise to the surface. I did not hurdle the child, although it did cross my mind. It crossed my mind. And then, so I got there and I got the stamp. And then I waited minutes, 15 minutes, for the rest of my family to arrive. 
and they also got the stamp. <laughs> I thought, all right, well, not my finest moment. Uh, might have some apologies to hand out a little bit later. In fact, I think probably the next half hour or hour of people were still getting the stamps. But I didn't learn my lesson, not at all, actually, um, because later, uh, after being in the, in the Wisconsin sun, there is sun up there, in the Wisconsin sun all day long, listening to bands from around the country, we were listening to Paul Simon, he came out first, and then Bob Dylan, and so when Paul Simon was done, so was my mom, uh, she doesn't like Bob Dylan, um, at all, and so she wasn't really uh, very happy to think about staying for another hour to listen to Bob Dylan mumble in whatever language he was mumbling in, right? Uh, and yet again, cutting words spilled out of my mouth. You will not take this from me, <laughs> right? Uh, you, you will not deprive me from being in the inner circle of this moment, right? There's only 20,000 people who get to be here. I, I will be one of them. Right, and so I, I realized I, I needed to rein in my tongue, but it was too late for that particular statement. And I actually remember the kid next to me, um, I had also gotten in free like myself, uh, but I felt he didn't deserve to be there. Actually, uh, Bob Dylan got to the point where he was singing "Knock, Knock, Knocking on Heaven's Door," classic. And the boy next to me said, I kid you not, he said, I can't believe Bob Dylan's covering Guns N' Roses. I thought, of all the undeserving people to be sitting here in this moment, I had to be sitting next to this one. He doesn't deserve to be in here for free. Like, I'm in here for free. Something in me, I had this instinct to be dividing the sheep and the goats all day long. All this anxiety in me, all this fear had been building up, and I had this instinct to fight tooth and claw to make sure I was in, and it didn't matter to me in that moment who was out. He must increase, I must decrease. Sometimes I think I'm alone in this problem where anxiety builds up, where it starts to well up and starts to spill out of my mouth. But I think maybe I'm not alone. For instance, I watched this movie one time, Chariots of Fire. You ever watched that movie? It's about two people, basically. Two runners. One who's exhausting himself trying to prove to the world that he belongs in the inner circle. When, when the anxiety is building for this runner, his name is Abrams. He's willing to hurdle any child, knock over any elderly woman, and cut off any friend if only he could feel for a moment that his existence was justified. He says those very words in the movie. He's exhausting himself trying to prove that he deserves to be in. And there's another runner. His name is Eric. Eric Little. has a very different approach to life. Rather than exhausting himself to try to prove to the world that he deserves to be in, he runs from a different space. 
He runs from the space of the inexhaustible love of God. He had chosen the well that never runs dry. It's a lesson that the disciples had to learn too. Yeah, sometimes I think I'm alone with this anxiety building and this and the words spilling out of my mouth and my instinct to divide the sheep and the goats and my instinct to make sure that I'm in at all costs, no matter who it cuts out. But I see it in our literature and in our arts, and I see it here in the scripture. I see it here with the disciples, where that instinct was still welling up inside them. We've been hanging out in Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 9, we see the disciples arguing quite a bit. Arguing with the Pharisees. They try to cast out a demon on their own and they fail. Um, You pick it up about halfway into the chapter, in chapter 9. And Jesus is actually trying to pull away from the crowds that had been adoring him and had had been in awe of him. And he, he wants to pull away so he could teach the disciples, is what it says. And so he goes to where there aren't anybody uh, crowding in around him, and he can sit with his disciples. And he actually tells them again that he's about to suffer. In fact, this time he gives us a little bit more information. He says that the Son of Man is going to be delivered. That is to say, he's going to be betrayed. He tells the disciples, hey, I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they're going to kill me. And in this very moment, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. Talk about wanting to rewind, right? They had no concern for Jesus in the moment. They weren't even concerned about who's going to betray Jesus. Instead, they were thinking about who ranks high enough, who's the best here. And, 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 and so Jesus, uh, he, he tells them this, and they don't understand it at all. It's clear they don't. They're, they're showing by their actions they don't understand. Jesus is talking about laying down his life, and they're talking about building up their portfolio. But when they, when they realize that they don't understand, they, they won't actually ask him about it. They're afraid to ask. That's what it says. If you look, it's in verse 32. It says they were afraid to ask him. Don't they know Jesus? Don't they know that if there's anybody, you don't have to be afraid to ask? It's Jesus. I wonder if they thought, if I ask, it will demonstrate that I'm outside the circle of understanding. I wonder if they thought, I'm, I'm in danger here. I might be on the outside looking in. So they don't ask. So while they're talking about who's the highest, and, and they're worried about, and they're hypertensive about the idea that maybe they could be on the outside looking in, Jesus is talking about welcoming others in. He says, okay, listen, you've got the wrong thing in mind. The first must be the very last. It must be the servant of all. Welcome these children in. 
In verse 36, he took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Brings them in. Instead of, instead of prioritizing yourself, placing yourself at the center, it, it becomes this reversal, a tremendous and beautiful reversal where now we're bringing others in. But I'll tell you, when I was studying this passage, the place that I stopped was, was actually next. The place I couldn't get over is this next moment. It's, it's when John speaks up. A lot of scholars think John was probably not much more than a child himself. And, and the, the, very, the very reason that it's remarkable that Jesus brought a child among them is that children in this society had no rights, no standing. Welcoming someone in was a matter of transaction. I welcome you so that you can welcome me. What kind of welcoming could a child do? So I I wonder if John felt a sense of anxiety that other disciples didn't have to feel quite so pointedly. Because he was basically a child. I wonder if he was scrambling each day wondering, what do I have to offer? There's Peter, the strong leader. These others, they they obviously have something to offer. What, What could I possibly offer? I sense some anxiety here from John. Here's what happens. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We told him to stop because he was not one of us. We made sure they know they're on the outside of the circle. Of course... Uh, the, the, the subtext in between the lines, we realize that John's trying to ask maybe in not so many words, am I really in the circle? He thinks the way to be in the circle with Jesus is to draw the line and make sure that others know they're out. A lot of commentators draw our attention to the fact that this is a very strange reaction to this moment of watching someone drive out a demon, telling them to stop, considering the disciples had themselves just failed at doing the very same thing. But can we not see that that's actually why John did it? Why did John tell this person to stop? He was jealous and afraid. He was jealous and afraid. He thought, well, maybe these strangers are the greatest. Maybe their ability to succeed at driving out this demon and our own failure means they're in and we're out. How, how, am, I supposed to, how am I supposed to be sure? Can you see John is anxious? Can you see John is fearful? So he says we, he says we did this, but he alone chose to go to Jesus with this information. It's, he, he's trying to please Jesus. He's exhausting himself. He's working so hard to try to make sure that he's loved. When actually 
he should instead be living out of the inexhaustible love of God. It's like he didn't know Jesus well enough yet. We mentioned that just a minute ago. They were afraid to ask Jesus. Here he thinks this is going to please Jesus when it's clearly not going to please Jesus. I wonder if he still had the wrong paradigm about what God is like in his mind. I wonder if he had been discipled in these old ways of thinking about God so fully had been formed in these wrong ways of thinking about God so deeply that it was it was still it's still a work in progress for him to be dislodged from those ideas disenchanted from those ideas and now enchanted with the the one true God I wouldn't be surprised at all it shouldn't shock us that John thinks that there are gods or that God has love for only certain people. He comes from an era and he comes from a place in the world where they had convinced themselves that God's loved you based on what you did. And not only just what you did, but what you did most recently. You think about the Greeks and the Romans and how they frantically worshipped the gods of the harvest. Trying to make sure that the rain would fall and that the sun would shine and that the crops would grow. Realizing if they didn't do it just so, if they didn't do it now, the gods could be displeased and maybe those things wouldn't happen. But here we have Jesus telling us that God makes the rain to fall on the fields of the righteous and the unrighteous. God's love is inexhaustible. But John still needed to learn this. He needed to be dislodged from his anxious views of God, wondering if he could do enough to belong. He needed to be entrenched, immersed in the view of God that Jesus was bringing to bear. Here's here's the anxious John and the anxious disciples actually making an enemy of people that ought to be their friends. They told these people to stop. They're not one of us. Forgetting that the demons were actually the opponent here. Jesus says, no, no, you shouldn't stop them. We're working together. These people who do miracles in my name, we're we're, we're all working together. John, you don't have to be so anxious. It strikes me actually quite deeply that this very anxious John, this one who's wondering, maybe constantly wondering, if he's in or not, is later the one who refers to himself as the beloved disciple. Something happened. John went from exhausting himself, wondering if he could ever earn the love of God, to living out of the inexhaustible love of God. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. (laughs) 
This passage talks about Jesus saying, hey, listen, the first must be last. You must make yourself a servant of all. And it stuck with John. At the Last Supper, John reminds us that it's when Jesus was washing their feet that he showed them the full extent of his love. This inexhaustible love. It's actually John who tells us that this kind of love, this perfect love, drives out fear. You know the phrase. It's John in in his epistles where he says, listen, the way that you're taking care of one another, that's beautiful. That's a sign that you're living out of the inexhaustible love of God. Even when you're taking care of the people you don't know, the strangers. John who wants to, when he was just young in the faith, divide and draw the line in the sand and make sure others know they're out so that he can feel better about being in. Later he says, actually, you should just be taking care of each other all the time. Actually, you should just be welcoming people in. It's it's John who puts the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of his gospel. And why is Jesus cleansing the temple? Because those people in the temple who had been in charge were all about drawing lines between who is in and who is out. And Jesus says, you've made my house a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer where we can gather. In fact, John in Revelation says, I'll tell you where we're going to gather. We're going to gather around Jesus and they're going to come from every corner of the earth. And we're going to be one people. Every tribe. Every tongue, every nation. Something happened in the heart of John. He learned to live out of the inexhaustible love of God. He learned to immerse himself in the truth that he is the beloved disciple, and so is everyone else. Because it's true and worth remembering that God is love. Yet another phrase that our friend John taught us. In fact, he says, God is love and because he's loved us, we can love others. John pictures a banquet in Revelation. John John says, we've been welcomed into the banquet, so now it's our joy to welcome others into the banquet. We don't have to scramble for the, the head seat. There's always room. In our Father's house, there are many, many rooms. He's not worried about building a bigger wall around what he has received. He's worried about building a longer table. How did this happen? What a beautiful thing. How did it happen? Well, I have a couple of ideas. One is the spiritual disciplines. John focuses on them, as do the gospel writers 
as a whole, but he focuses on them. But what we're learning here is to flip them over in our minds. We might, like John in his youth, be tempted to think, I do the spiritual disciplines so that God will love me. But John, when his age had matured, when his faith had matured, said, no, no, no. I do the spiritual discipline so I can remember that God loves me. Reality doesn't change. I merely become aware of it. In fact, this passage in Mark gives us hints at it. Jesus is teaching them. John must have been listening. Immersed in the spiritual disciplines. Perhaps, as is suggested in this passage, perhaps one of those spiritual disciplines is confession. An odd thing for a Protestant to talk about, but we're going to talk about it. What could be more freeing than to confess your sins and realize it didn't do one bit of difference about how God loved you? We like to say in our house, it's actually impossible for God to love you anymore and he'll never love you any less. That's Anselm, kids. St. Anselm. He says, listen, God is the best thing you can think of. If you're thinking of a God who actually sometimes stops loving you, you haven't yet thought of God. Maybe a lower G. If you're thinking of a God who says, if you do these things just right, I'll love you. You haven't yet thought of God. If you're thinking of God whose love is inexhaustible and you don't have to exhaust yourself to earn it, now you're getting somewhere. He's the best thing you can think of. Confess your sins so that you can experience what is already true. It's impossible for him to love you anymore. He's the best thing you can think of. And he'll never love you any less. He's the best thing you can think of. You don't have to be so afraid. You'll never be on the outside. He has made a way for you. You are secure in Jesus. You have a seat at the table. And it's our joy to welcome others into their seats right next to us. Even if they think Guns N' Roses wrote, knocking on heaven's door. No, we don't do the spiritual disciplines to be loved by God. We do them to remember how loved we are. To remember that no matter what distance or direction we're coming from, we're welcome at the banquet feast of Jesus. If you're coming a long way off, the Father's waiting outside the gates for you. If you're coming from an unexpected direction like the Syrophoenician woman or something, Jesus is coming for you. He'll cross any border, any line that someone else drew. He's crossing them. He's building bridges and not walls. And he's coming to get you. He's in pursuit of you. No matter what distance or direction you're coming from, you're welcome at the banquet feast of the Lamb. We can immerse ourselves in that belief, in that truth. We can immerse ourselves in this truth. In Christ, we no longer have any enemies. Only brothers and sisters who have been away from home too long. 
We don't have to say, hey, stop, you're not one of us. We can say, hey, there's a seat next to me. Because Jesus' perfect love drives out the fear that teaches us to make enemies of people. Now, in Jesus, we have no enemies. Only siblings who have been away from home too long. Let's welcome them home. Even if they're strangers, like John says in his epistles. Because God's love is so great that we have been called children of God. Something John reminds us in the first chapter of his gospel and all throughout his epistles and celebrates in his letter to the churches that we call Revelation. The veil's torn. All the false divisions have dissolved. And we're gathered around Christ, whose love is inexhaustible. Where we no longer have to exhaust ourselves, but we can just rest in the inexhaustible love of God. I have just one thing that I think might help us this week. Let's just read John. You could read the gospel, 21 chapters. It's a good one. You could read the epistles, it's like five pages. You could read Revelation. But when you read it, read it through the lens of a little boy who grew up spending time immersed in the love of God. Read it through the lens of a child whose anxiety dissolved in the hands of the loving Savior. Who's actually the one who was resting on Jesus' shoulder at the Last Supper. And the one who sat at the foot of the cross with the women who had been faithful to the very end. Read it through a lens of one who learned he didn't have to exhaust himself. Because God's love is inexhaustible. He didn't have to divide sheep and goats. Because no matter what distance or direction we're coming from, we're welcome with Jesus. He didn't have to make enemies of anyone because Jesus had made us his children, children of God. And so we're all just siblings, some of whom have been away from home for too long who are out there exhausting themselves. Let's welcome them home. That's the kingdom ethic. Welcoming people home in the name of Jesus. Because Jesus has made a hope for us. We have great hope. He's our cornerstone. He's the place we rest. He's he's the foundation of it all. I think we should return to that, actually. Let's, let's sing it again. Let's, let's immerse ourselves one more time in the inexhaustible love of God. That's the spiritual discipline of worship. We don't worship God so that we can be close to Him. We worship God so we remember that He's close to us. He's made a way. 
We, we don't worship God so that he'll love us. We worship God to remember that he loves us always. It's impossible for him to love us any more than he does, and he'll never love us any less. That's worth immersing ourselves in. Let's pray. Lord, we want to cast our anxiety out. But we recognize sometimes we fail to cast that out. Come and drive it out with your perfect love. Remind us again that you care for the, the sparrows and the lilies of the field. And you dress them up all nice. And you know them all. And you know us. And we are your beloved disciple. And your love is inexhaustible. Don't let us go a day without sitting at your feet and remembering again what has always been true. Your love is inexhaustible. You proved it. You showed it to the the fullest extent. You, you, You made a way. Thank you so much. Amen.